You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to Titus, Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Uh, So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And there Paul writes the following. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, With the anticipation of churches, many of them already having started to physically gather together again, One of the discussion points has been, well, what will the service look like? Uh, And it's given that there will be changes in how churches do some of their services now, maybe regarding the offering, uh, communion, the wearing of masks. But, But there's another question to ask that often doesn't seem to be addressed, and that is not what will the service look like, but but how should those who sit in church each week and hear a message how and why should that affect them? In other words, how should we listen to a sermon? How should we respond to being physically gathered together and sitting under the teaching of God's word? Uh, And I think a way to answer that question is to look at this book or letter of Titus. Um, Titus is one of three pastoral epistles. So you have first and second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Unlike Paul's other letters, they're addressed to an individual, uh, and they're addressed to an individual who is shepherding and overseeing the work of God in a specific church. Uh, And so even though when you think in the New Testament, you have 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, probably Titus and 1st Timothy were written very close to one another. Uh, It's possible even Titus may have been written before 1st Timothy. Then you have a gap between them till you have 2 Timothy, which is towards the end of Paul's life. Uh, But it's in this letter of Titus that we find counsel related to how the Christian is to relate to the church, to the home, and to the world. And so it's a very relevant letter, even though it's only three chapters long. Uh, But what I would like to do is kind of look at this opening first four verses of this letter to answer this question, how should sitting in church each week look in terms of us responding to what we hear and why? Why should we respond in the way that it seems to indicate here? Uh, So typically in Paul's letters, the first couple of verses are that opening greeting. And it's one of those things we sometimes tend to rush through, saying we want to get to the body of the letter, the meat of the letter. But 
in Titus, those opening four verses are critical. They, they set the tone for the entire letter. Uh, they are very theological. Uh, this is one of the longest sort of salutations, greetings in Paul's letters, other than Romans, which has a lengthy introduction. So there is a lot packed into these four verses. Uh, and I'd like us to consider them in terms of two specific points this morning. So here's the first point if you're writing down notes. Uh, we need to be discerning of false messengers and false messages. We need to be discerning of false messages and false messengers. Uh, because you notice how verse 1 begins, it's emphasizing the authority of Paul. Not, not in a negative way, but as an apostle, he's writing with authority, which would indicate, as you get into this letter, that there's a concern that many in Crete are not displaying the discernment they should, that they're not distinguishing as clearly as they should between false messengers and false messages and what is true. So let's kind of develop that first point and, and kind of think about first, what was Crete like? Um, so if you look at chapter one, go down to verse five, because as you go through this letter, we're told some things about the culture and environment of Crete that are important to us. Uh, and I think you'll see how they're relevant to the world around us. So notice in verse five, it says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, now Crete is one of the largest islands in the southernmost part of the Mediterranean Sea, ideal location for trade and things like that. But culturally, it was very much antagonistic to the Christian faith. And what verse 5 would indicate is that the little bit we know about the work of the church established in Crete is that it may have been a fairly young church that Paul planted the church, but then is calling on Titus to complete what he started there. When it says here to straighten out, it's not implying that Paul's left it in a mess and he's just asking Titus to come in and fix it. But he's saying, Titus, God is placing you there to finish what I have started. And one of those tasks, as we'll see next week, is appointing elders in that church and in these house churches uh, to be able to give them greater discernment in distinguishing false messages and false messengers. But, but that's a real concern in the city of Crete. If you go down to verses 10 and 11, you'll notice there, there's a reference to this undercurrent of false messengers and false messages. In verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. 
So now that window on these false teachers and false messengers is, is slightly opened more. And we understand there must be some sort of Jewish component to it because he speaks of those who are of the circumcision group. But even as you go through the later letter, you find other references that may broaden that group, that it may have had a Jewish element to it. There may have been some Christian teaching uh, mixed into that mix, as well as some very like ascetic teaching. Uh, and so what's interesting is in this background to Titus, the specific false teachers and false messages are not specifically identified, but that vagueness also makes it relevant to any group that we might find even around us today that is sending a message that is contrary to the word of God. So that's a little bit about the culture that Titus is going to find himself in as he has his work cut out for himself in Crete. But then go down to verse 12 of chapter 1, and we're told something about the, the general character of those who lived in Crete. Uh, this is a broad, sweeping statement, but listen to what even some of the own Cretans say about themselves. Titus says, even, or Paul writes, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. In other words, the, the city itself had a reputation of being immoral, uh, of trying to, what we might say, work the system. They were known for their unsavory character. Uh, and so this gives you an, an indication that if we need to discern false messages and false messages, that that's a climate where this is a prevalent issue. And I think as I draw those things out from the text, we realize there are many places in the first century that the same warning needed to be issued. Uh, listen to these words from Colossians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want or just listen. In Colossians 2, we know Paul was writing to the believers in Colossae, and there were concerns there about some false teaching. But in Colossians 2 verse 8, writing to the church, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. So there is an example of two letters where Paul is, is saying to Christians, exhorting Christians, you, you need to be discerning. You need to know what, what is a false message sound like? What is a false messenger look like? And so that brings us in the development of this first point that we, we too need to discern this difference. And that is, what are some examples in our world where we have false messengers and false messages that, that are inundating our culture? Uh, and if you know anything about a postmodern culture, you begin to see how we are not much different from the climate in Crete. Uh, some examples could be uh, false messages, false messengers, uh, the appeal of the prosperity gospel. Uh, you know, this teaching that 
God wants you to be, quote unquote, happy. Uh, he wants to bless you with material things. Uh, it gives you the Bible just to make your life livable and productive. You know, just five keys to a successful life. Uh, this is peddled today in many places. Uh, that, that is a, a false message. It's a false messenger who's promoting that. Um, the opposite of that, you could think of easy believism, uh, sort of the sense that, you know, following Christ is just something very easy, natural. It should fix your life. It should take away all your trials and problems. Uh, there's nothing really expected from you, that, that God just loves you for, for who you are. Uh, we, we see that in the downplaying of sin today. Uh, to speak of a God who judges sin uh, is frowned upon uh, and is actually purposely avoided uh, in many places, I would say, they're a church but are not teaching the whole counsel of God. But then thinking of what Colossians 2, 8 said about what are ungodly philosophies, that, that even as Christians, we can easily begin to, to kind of fall prey to in our own thinking. Uh, well, in considering that, I thought of uh, relativism. Uh, relativism is where there, there's no really right and wrong um, Morals, values are relative. And we have that all around us. And it is easy for us as Christians to think, well, that sounds good. Uh, it sounds loving and caring to not want to be judgmental towards someone. But, but the reality is Scripture does teach there are absolute truths. And there are things that are absolutely sinful, no, no matter what reasoning or excuse you might use to try to justify it. Subtle ways that that impacts us, I think, is I'm sure all of you have seen the show Modern Family. Uh, a, a funny show. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but that is a show that I, I like. But, but one of the subtle messages there is it's presenting a whole different lifestyle that is contrary to the Word of God and presenting it from the thought of, well, times have changed. Our world has changed. Family dynamics have changed. The design of the family has evolved and changed. That, that's a very relativistic sort of principle being presented, but in an amusing, disarming way, which makes it so dangerous. So there's relativism. Another ism we can think of is narcissism. Uh, we live in a very self-centered, self-focused world. And, and that is all around us. And it is very easy as Christians to be influenced and impacted by that. When we think of what we can do in the church might be impacted by, well, do I, what do I get out of that? Uh, does it benefit me in any way? Or wanting just to have whatever acts we do, noticed and applauded by others. That, that's a narcissistic attitude. So we have relativism, narcissism. We could add to that humanism, uh, the philosophy that we can solve our own problems, uh, that we, in a sense, are our own savior. 
And I think even as Christians, we can battle that at times where, where we know we should rely on the Lord, but we first will try everything in our own power to solve our own problems. And then finally, we can consider just skepticism, uh, the general attitude of many that, that everything is to be questioned and doubted. Nothing certain can be known, uh, a very critical, pessimistic attitude. This has come out in religious polling where for the first time, many, many millennials and young adults are, are facing the reality that they will live at a lower standard of life and earn less money than their parents before them. Where it's never been that way. It's always been the opposite though, more optimistic the future will be. But we have the reality now for many that very pessimistic, hopeless <clears throat> sort of sense of reality. And this is the culture that is around us. So we are not to certainly be conformed to that culture, but I think we would all be naive to think somehow that that does not affect us if we're not careful. And this is all a part of discerning the culture around us and realizing this is the time and the place in which God has placed his church and placed you and me. So the first point of just this opening introduction is just like the church in Crete, just like Titus is to teach them, we, we need to be discerning of false messages and false messengers. But that naturally flows into our second point of this introduction to the letter, and that is we need to be devoted to hearing true messages and true messengers. We, we need to be devoted to hearing true messages and true messengers. So what does that look like then? Because we can't just erase how our culture is. So what does it look like? Well, I think as you go through these first four verses, Paul lays out three steps that would lead us toward being more devoted to, to hearing true messages and messengers. In other words, how we hear and what we do with what we hear when we're sitting in church, when we open the scriptures and read it in the privacy of our own homes. So look at me at verse one. Again, we're just looking at this morning at the, the introduction of this letter. Um, in verse one, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's description of himself is typical, but yet somewhat distinct in this letter. In other words, the first step we should take to discern and hear true messages is to know the authority of the messenger. That determines a lot. What is the authority of the messenger? And in this case, what Paul is presenting to Titus is, keep in mind the divine authority of the true messenger. And so you see this in verse one in the way that Paul describes himself and his ministry. Uh, and if you think about this, you want to think, why is he describing himself this way? I mean, Paul knows who he is. Titus knows who Paul is. So this is not for the benefit of Titus. It's not for the benefit of Paul. It's for the benefit of those who are going to 
hear this letter read in their presence. They need to know the divine authority of the messenger. And so consider the way Paul does this. He first says he is a servant of God. Now, this is the only time in Paul's letters where he says he's a servant of God. Typically, he will say he's a servant of Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. But particularly here, he focuses on, and this could be because of that Jewish element of the false messengers, that he's going to focus on he's a servant of God, the one true God. And you probably already know that the word servant here means literally he is a a bond slave. Uh, with, With all of the concern right now over racial justice and tensions, we want to be careful here to realize that the way the Bible speaks of slavery is in an Old Testament context. It's not the equivalent of African-American slavery in our history. Um, in, In Old Testament times, you had two forms of servants. You had temporary servants who typically worked for a master to pay off a debt. And in exchange, they were given security, housing, and their needs were provided for. But there were also permanent servants. One one could choose willingly, out of their own volition, to be remaining permanently under that particular master. And in this case, Paul uses a word that would reflect a permanent slave, that, that he is willingly placing himself under the direction and submission of God. And so when you take it from that Old Testament context and its roots, Paul's using it here in a descriptive way as, in a sense, a a badge of honor and indicating a privilege. It is a privilege for Paul to say, I am a servant of God. And it points back to the divine authority of the messenger because he is saying, I am speaking the words of God. But it's also helpful maybe to realize that when Paul would say he's a servant of God, this would bring up pictures to those who are familiar with the Old Testament. This phrase was reserved for certain individuals. Moses was called a servant of God. David was called a servant of God. Uh, Many of the prophets were called servants of God. And ultimately, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, is referred to as the servant of the Lord or the servant of God. And so now you say, is, is Paul actually wanting to communicate to the believers in Crete and to remind Titus, who is going to stand before his people to speak, that he is speaking with the authority of God? That, that he's not just presenting something like a short devotional or his own opinion. He's speaking as a divine messenger. And you also see in verse 1, the second way that Paul describes himself, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle emphasizes one sent with authority. So both those descriptive terms help us understand this first step in hearing true messengers and messages. 
one recognize the divine authority of the one who speaks and unfolds the word of God to us, that they are a servant of God, that they have been in the broadest sense sent by God to us. So the congregation in these home house churches in Crete should see Titus as being, in a sense, God's gift to them, sent by God to teach them the word of God. But following along in this first step to know the authority of the messenger, go down to verse 2, and you see that a true message is founded upon God's promises. In verse 2, it says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So if we want to discern a true message from a false message, does it rest on the promises of God? Not in the persuasive powers of the speaker, who, who maybe just moves us and makes us feel a certain emotion. But, but can we say, you know what, this message is true because it goes right back to the very promises of God. That God is the God of all truth and his promises are an anchor for our soul. There may have been an additional reason why Paul wants Titus to emphasize that God does not lie. And that is the city of Crete prided itself on being what they said was the birthplace of many pagan gods. So from a Cretan perspective, they believe that all Greeks came out of the soil in Crete. In other words, that they were the originating place where all Greeks came out. But they also believe that the majority of the gods were born in Crete. And one of their major gods was Zeus. But a very well-known Cretan tale talks about how Zeus purposely would deceive and lie to accomplish things that he wanted to do. And it could very well be that Paul is saying, look at the character of the one who is behind the ultimate message here. The character of God in contrast to the character of Zeus. That God does not lie. And then notice verse 3 and verse 9 remind us that a divine message must always point to and is fulfilled in the gospel. In verse 3, Paul says, At his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So think about what does Paul mean by in the appointed time he brought his word to light. Then go down to verse 9. And in verse 9, Paul says, referring to elders or bishops, he says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And I believe that the phrase, the, the word in verse 3, and trustworthy message in verse 9, are both a reference to the gospel. Now, what Paul is saying here, how has God revealed himself to us? Through 
the gospel. And so a true message not only must emphasize the divine authority of the messenger, but it must always point us to and take us back to the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So all of that is that first step. Know the divine authority of the messenger. Does, does their message point us to the gospel? Does it point us to the centrality of Christ? But the second step would be know how the divine message is to be delivered. In other words, is there a design that God has for how this message from God is to be conveyed and communicated to you and me? And so you see in verse 3, Paul mentions through the preaching entrusted to me. In other words, the design of delivery for this message is through the written word as it is read, unfolded, and explained through those whom God has called to teach and preach it. That yes, we have the privilege as in the priesthood of Christ, all of us can come to the word of God. We can all read it. We can certainly through the Holy Spirit understand it. But yet at the same time, God has placed in the church teachers, preachers, to take that word and explain it further to us, to help us grasp its fullest meaning and understanding. And so the priesthood of believers doesn't mean you don't need the church, that you can just read the Bible and you don't need teachers and preachers. What it's saying is those have been given to complement the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit so we can understand God's word to a greater level so that it will impact and transform our lives. In other words, that's the design of God's revelation, that it would come to us through the preaching of people called by God. So that's in verse 3. Notice in verse 4, he speaks of, To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. This may indicate that Paul played a strategic role in Titus's conversion. Uh, we don't know that definitely, but he, he uses the same phrase of Timothy. <clears throat> Timothy, my true son in the faith. In other words, we could look at this and say it's a work of the Holy Spirit, but how does anyone hear the gospel? It's by someone sharing with them, by someone explaining it, by opening the scriptures up to them. And that's exactly what we should expect to see happen whenever we sit in church, whenever we are in a Bible study and being taught God's word, that this is the means God has designed the word to come to us through weak and fragile instruments. And Paul speaks of this. This is our common faith. This is the faith that we all share in together through Jesus Christ. And the design and purpose as to why would God do it this way is made clear to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, so if you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul explains why God designed the divine message 
to come to us in this manner. 1 Corinthians 2. And again, we find ourselves looking at a New Testament letter that is written to a culture that is relevant to today. Uh, in Corinth, it was known not just for its immoral lifestyle, uh, but many philosophers and, and teachers passed through the city, uh, you know, promoting their views. Uh, and so you had rhetoric was very valued by the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, if one could speak persuasively uh, and with great eloquence, that was admired. They were honored. Uh, but Paul contrasts that with how does the gospel come into a setting like that? Are, are we to compete with that? Are we to try to out-professionalize or copy exactly what our world values? So listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, Paul was not in any way saying he was not prepared to speak, or that he only talked about Christ's death and resurrection, because, you know, he clearly taught them more than just that basic doctrine. But he was not going to try to copy or emulate what the world valued. That he knew that the design of the Word of God, how it is taught and presented, is always to magnify the message, not the messenger. That this is the Spirit's design. So one of the ways you can probably gauge, have you listened to a sermon correctly and discerned it correctly, is do you leave impressed with what you have learned about God? Not, not impressed with the speaker, not impressed with their credentials or their illustrations, but you walk away in awe of God. That you walk away in realizing the power of the Holy Spirit to work through weak and sinful instruments that become instruments of righteousness in his hands. Paul says that's what he wanted the people and church in Corinth to, to leave with when he moved on from there, that they would see the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I think we're all aware of in a, in a very glamorized age where we have media and other things around us, that it is so easy to become enamored with appearances, with <clears throat> performance-oriented preaching, rather than spirit-empowered preaching. That must require preparation and hard work. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying here one should just get up and, and share with the congregation saying, well, the spirit will just give me what I need at that moment. No, there should be hours of preparation examination of scripture, but, but ultimately a true message of God will leave you with a deeper 
awareness of who God is. And so in thinking about how Paul is walking Titus through this process to help Titus lead and shepherd the congregations in Crete, we have this fact that you need to know how the divine message is delivered. This is God's design. And now we come to the third step in this second point. And remember, the second point was we need to be devoted to hearing true messengers and true message. And the third step in that for us to follow is know how or know the purpose of the messenger and the message. Know the purpose of the messenger and the message. And that's told to us in verses 1 and 2 and following. Notice in verse 1, we had Paul giving his credentials. But, but then he goes on to say, this is for the faith of God's elect. In other words, the purpose of the scriptures is to first enlarge your faith in God as one of God's elect. That, that you should leave a time of reading the scriptures, of hearing them taught to you on a Sunday morning, whenever it is, you should leave with an enlarged understanding of your faith in God. You should be encouraged in your faith in God. You know, this word faith here speaks of that which you can be confident or trustworthy in. And so does, does a message challenge us in that way? Does it exhort us to, to take whatever our present circumstances are, our, our present concerns, does it leave us with saying, we have a great God, and, and my faith is strengthened as a result of what I have just seen in God's word. So it should enlarge your faith in God. And Paul clearly says it here, for the, it's for the faith of God's elect. But then he goes on and secondly adds to that, and the knowledge of the truth, which results or leads to godliness. In other words, a second purpose of hearing a true message from a true messenger of God is to increase your knowledge of God. But to increase your knowledge of God for the purpose of godliness. Because if you just stopped at knowledge, that's kind of a problem with many, I think, sermons today. They, they fill us with information, but they don't make any difference in our life. That, that we're failing to take the part about the knowledge of Scripture and translate it into how it should exhort us to greater godliness. A good way to think of the term godliness here is living a life that's in accordance with biblical teaching. So does the message you hear on a Sunday, how does it translate and equip you in your life to live according to God's standards? And if, if you're not leaving the true teaching of God's word with that in mind, then there's a dangerous disconnect there. Because it's, it's more than like a lecture. It's, it's something we hear. It may hold our attention. 
there may be some good points we jot down that we want to remember. But if it doesn't move past that to producing godliness in us, then it's not doing the work that God intended it to. And that's not God's fault. And I don't believe it's even the, the fault of the preacher or teacher at that point. It's the fault within our own hearts as to our failure to hear God's word as we should. Then you notice as well in verse 2, Paul says, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. In other words, the purpose of any message or messenger who is speaking God's word is to always direct your thoughts away from this world and to turn them heavenward. That somewhere as we're hearing the teaching of God's word, it is always to take our thoughts and turn them away from this world. We can start with this world, as I did this morning, talk to you about the culture in Crete, the culture around us through relativism all the way to humanism. But I didn't stop there. I used that to help and say, you know what, let's turn away from that to that which is greater, heavenward, to that which rests on the promises of God who does not lie, who rests on the hope of eternal life. Isn't that what scripture is intended to do for all of us? To give us that broader perspective? Then when we leave, we're going back into the same world that we were a part of before we sat down together in worship. But we're re-entering that world with a different perspective, a heavenly perspective, a perspective that is founded upon that hope, that certainty of the eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, when you're listening to all this, you, I think you start to see well, listening to a sermon should be hard work. Not only should you expect your preacher or teacher to spend hours in preparing, but reciprocated, there should be hard work on the hearer's part to say, what is God seeking to communicate and say to me in my life? What principles here need to make their way and be applied as this is God's design. And so you see there's encouragement for Titus in this, because as I said, <clears throat> Titus has his work cut out for him. But you notice what's said in verse 4, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What an encouraging encouragement to Titus. This is going to be difficult to do, to teach and to preach and to, to have your, your weaknesses be evident as you stand before your people. But you go in the grace and peace that is yours in God and in Jesus Christ. Again, elevating here the deity of Christ as Paul matches that with the Father and Jesus Christ. 
And so I can't help to think about not should we only think about, well, what will services look like as we gather together as other churches are meeting? How have they changed? But more importantly, how are we being changed every week after we hear a sermon? after we read scripture on our own, after we we listen to those that God has placed around us to teach us and explain it more fully, are, are we hearing that message and that messenger as God has designed it to be? Because tied to your response and hearing of a sermon is your understanding of where does the authority of that messenger come from? And where does the authority of the message come from? And Paul establishes that very clearly here uh, for the believers in Crete. In about 1555, uh, John Calvin preached through the letter of Titus. Uh, It took him about 17 sermons to do so. but, but in his preaching of this letter, he made this comment to his congregation. Uh, he said, I believe that many of you would loudly praise that you want to follow the gospel. But I don't think many of you are willing to be taught. And he was establishing a disconnect that sometimes we verbally listen to something but we really don't hear it. We don't understand the importance and the the responsibility and the accountability before God to take what we have heard, and hopefully it's been explained clearly, uh, and to take it and then, by God's grace, have that be applied in our life. Let me share with you just these words from 1 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, to see that this is not just a view of one apostle, uh, but a unified view in 1 Peter 4 and verses 10 and 11. uh, Peter's writing about spiritual gifts, but he says this, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do, do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Peter recognized that he spoke with authority because he spoke the message from God that had all authority. And just reminds us that that is the task that I have as a preacher. That is the task that all of you have in terms of how you hear and and take the message. uh, And through the spirit, apply it that we all would increase in greater godliness throughout the week.